1: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen.
0: The sermon text is found in James chapter 5 this morning, page 1013 of the Blue Pew Bible. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word.
1: Let us pray. Gracious Lord, bless us that we will understand your word, that we will, Lord, use the wealth that you've given us in a way that pleases you. Lord, encourage us and build us up in your precious word. Feed us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Money is, uh, or should be for us, a, a scary thing in a way um, because there is so much warning in Scripture uh, against it. We're pretty familiar, I think, with Jesus' words that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when you consider the whole world population... And the fact that all of us here would be certainly considered the rich of the world, it's something to give pause, <laughs> something to for us to ask, what am I doing with my wealth? Now, I, I don't want this to be, uh, you know, just simply uh, a guilt, you know, laying the guilt on us, uh, making us feel. From that motivation only, that we've got to do something. Uh, But hopefully, we can all the more be set free from our love of money, set free from the world's grasping attitude toward money, and be set free to use our money gladly in the way God has called us to. Now, this passage doesn't really Directly speak to the subject of giving, and I'm not going to try to you know put it, put it in a headlock and make it do that <laughs> so that I can get in something like that, although I will speak to the issue because I think it's, it's related. In fact, this is an interesting passage because it's more like the prophets. Uh, Amos is probably the most famous, but Micah, Isaiah, go through periods in, in their books in which they address the nations. And it's a little bit odd because Babylon or Assyria will be addressed, Edom will be addressed, and you realize they're not there to hear this message. And that really, we think, is what James is doing here. He is addressing the unrighteous rich in the world. Uh, this is so full of judgment that not many think that he is speaking directly to believers here. But he's speaking in the main to unbelievers. So, we, the question comes up, why would this be good for us? Why is it good in the prophets? Why do they break out and just speak to those unbelievers out there, those unbelieving nations? We've all experienced this. Uh, in political speeches, haven't we? How often a candidate will address, even directly, the other candidate. Call him by name and say, why are you this? And you're this. And this is what he says here. And this is what they're going to do there. And everybody gets, you know, they, they they don't think, well, why are you talking about them? They get fired up, don't they? <laughs> they they are encouraged. They're, they realize we don't believe that. That's not what we are. We're standing for something different. So this passage has several effects for believers. It's first this, this summons to unbelievers, come now, you rich. It, this ties it in with chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 that we dealt with last week because he calls them, come now, you who say. Uh, so it's a bit of a unit here. But there's this summons, and then he tells them what's going to happen to their riches in verses 2 and 3. And then he tells them why this is going to happen in verses 4 through 6. So you have this summons, and he's telling them, this is what's going to happen, and this is why this is happening to you. Now, this will help us in several ways. One, it helps us to see that the wicked oppressors in this world will not last forever. It will help us not to envy wicked oppressors in the world because they are in deep trouble. It will help us to understand that God sees the suffering of his people in the world. This is a message that is just shot through the Psalms and the the prophets of God coming to the rescue of the suffering in this world. And you have to bear in mind that when... It speaks of the rich and the poor in the Old Testament. There's this basic assumption, not that all rich are unrighteous, but the rich they're talking about are unrighteous, and the poor they're talking about are the righteous. That's that's a common assumption because of the situation that the people of God have faced so many times when they were oppressed by those who have power and wealth. (laughs) So it's not to say that all rich people uh, fall into this category because he he lays out the specific reasons why these rich people he's speaking about will suffer judgment. But it borders up against and, and shows us what God thinks of those who misuse wealth. And so all the more it reveals to us God's attitude, God's judgment upon Uh, these kinds of things. And as Doriani says, it helps us keep a healthy distance from the seductive power exercised by wealth and the luxuries of civilization. Okay? When you see what God says is going to happen to those who defraud and abuse their power, who live excessive, luxurious lives while others are suffering without any concern or care, and how they are judged, it's to uh, not only to realize God's future judgment upon that, His hearing and finally relieving and rescuing His people from that, but it causes us at the same time to say, i got to stay miles away from that. Miles away. I've got to be careful that I'm not leaning toward this attitude toward wealth, this carelessness about wealth. And I think there's where I can legitimately, not just in a headlock, but mention the idea of giving. Because for believers, that's where that attitude will start. Because many in the church don't give anything away. They just don't we 've got the records to show now i haven 't seen those records, so i 'm not looking at you and say, "Like you, for instance, you know <laughs> um, <clears throat> but we just know that there 's a certain percentage of our people that it appears are giving generously, some giving very little, some don 't give, and that attitude of hoarding and not considering god 's call and lordship to your giving to his people is part of this attitude it's 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 kind of like uh what we say of well i haven't murdered but i'm angry at people that's still a part of murder so it's still part of this attitude of lord you will not be lord over my money okay These people certainly are that way. You will not be Lord over my money. In fact, I will do whatever I want to with my money, and I will even hurt people with my money, and I will gather more and more money to the exclusion of others and and ignoring others. Well, that you can see how part of that is shared by the attitude of, I will not give any of my money to the people of God. I will not share my money with the people of God. I will not allow God to be a part of that. So uh, I think it speaks to that. So th- he, th- we're going to look at the summons, then we're going to look at what he, what is going to happen to their wealth, verses 2 and 3, and then why, because of what they've done in verses uh, 4 and following. Now, when he says here, uh, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. These words, weep and howl, are used constantly in the Old Testament, speaking of final judgment. In fact, the word howl here is used exclusively in the prophets, and it's used always in a judgment setting. So he is talking then here about final judgment. This is what's going to happen to you. And he doesn't just say the word, the misery that is coming, but the miseries that are coming. Trying to show the intensity of the judgment and the pain and the suffering that will come upon you. And he doesn't say this is a possibility. He says it is a certainty. And it's interesting how how the rich will stave off the possibility of a catastrophe by hoarding wealth while they ignore the sure catastrophe of judgment, right? The sure catastrophe of judgment. What counts in that day is not how wealthy I am or not, it's what did I do with my wealth? What was my attitude toward my wealth? How did I exhibit Christ's lordship? In my wealth, how did I exhibit my love and devotion and my joy in Jesus Christ with my wealth so there's here, here's the summon you come these miseries are, are are coming upon you and notice the thing that they are depending on their riches the thing that has become the center of their lives and Paul speaks of this in First Timothy 6, that is their riches. He, he speaks of this in First Timothy 6 um, when he talks about wealth. This is a, an excellent, excellent section. He says, as for the rich, this is the very almost last paragraph in First Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, we all should be like, okay, <laughs> that's me. Let me hear what he's going to say. Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. There you go. And, and what we're going to see here in James is certainly the uncertainty of, of riches. But don't be haughty. Don't begin to think of uh, that you are the one who has created this situation. Look at your gifts. Look at your accomplishment. Look how much more you have than someone else. There should be the greatest humility that comes from being uh, having wealth in this world. Don't be haughty. Don't set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, you see, Paul here doesn't say it's wrong. He doesn't say to the rich, as for the rich in this present age, get rid of it now. Now, this second, tomorrow, get rid of every bit of that. You cannot have that wealth. You cannot own anything. Just doesn't say that. And he had a great opportunity, didn't he? He's the Apostle Paul. He's, Of course, he's speaking straight from God. This is God's word to us. But he says, don't set your hope on it. Set your hope on God who provides it. So that instead of this haughtiness, there should be this humility, uh, recognizing the God who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. And then he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And you see, that's, that's what uh, Jesus said in his parable of the guy that built uh, Made you know his crops were so big he had to build, build bigger barns. He says I'm going to build these bigger barns. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to take it easy for years and years to come. And God says to him, "You fool! Tonight your soul is required." And he was judged because his whole hope was on uh, wealth. And Jesus says, "Such will be the person uh, who is not rich toward God." Let's see. Does it really matter if I'm rich in this world? Am I rich toward God? Is He my wealth? Is basically the question. Is Jesus my wealth? Is Jesus my true treasure? And it's exhibited in our lives, in at least in one place, of how generous we are with what Jesus has provided. And haughtiness is our own. Our our refusal to share, our refusal to be generous with what God has given us. That means I'm haughty. That means I'm beginning to set my hope on the uncertainty of my riches. I'm counting on them, not my relationship to God. So those who are rich are to be good, to be rich, uh, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, storing up a treasure and a foundation for the future. Now, here's the situation, though, with the unrighteous rich, as he outlines it here in chapter Five, a believer storing up a foundation, storing up a, a treasure. and a backdrop to this is paul 's words in uh, Paul's words in Romans two, where he 's speaking to the Jews who were relying on their own works and they were relying on their own privilege of being the people of God. And since we're the elect people of God, since we have the covenant, uh, we have the law, uh, they actually began not to keep that law very carefully and holding a different standard for themselves uh, so that they condemned others uh, while they themselves did not even live according to that law. But they didn't care because it doesn't really apply to us because we're the privileged few. And part of their view of the law, as I was just reading this week, Uh, part of their view of the law in Jewish thinking is the more we keep the law, the more we're storing up a foundation for the future. And uh, one rabbi says more and more laws means more and more treasure. And that's why they would try to multiply laws and make up more laws because, hey, here's another law we can make up. Hey, more treasure we can keep, you know, more treasure we can make. And Paul just turns the whole thing upside down in Romans 2, 5 and says, you know what you're storing up? He says, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That's what you're storing up. All this law keeping, not depending on the mercy of God, not recognizing I'm a lost and broken person, not recognizing even what circumcision says that I must have a renewed heart. I must be transformed by your grace and mercy. I must be forgiven of my sins and rest and and live out your mercy. No, I just need to keep more laws, keep more rules. And if I do this, uh, I will build up a treasure. And he says, you're storing up wrath, wrath for yourself. And that's the same thing that James is talking about here. You, you feel like you're storing up stuff and you're, you're collecting all this money and and to, at the expense of people who need it so desperately, even defacing and defrauding uh, the poor as you do it. And for them, it just becomes bigger and bigger thing that they can depend on and rest in. And you get to the judgment day and that all will be a storage of wrath. He says, your gold and silver have corroded. Now, you know, gold doesn't corrode. It can just sit there for centuries. And though silver tarnishes, it doesn't really corrode like iron does. But this is a way to show that judgment is so severe and so complete that even your gold will corrode. It's a, it's a imagery, you see, to, to show that, Judgment will come, and even those things that you think are most precious and, and, and will always be there, they're going to be gone. They are already gone. He uses a past tense to show that this future has already happened to you. It's already gone, what you're depending on. Sophie Law says, gold and silver might well be base metals for all the worth they really are for their possessors. It's a way to say it's worthless. And then notice, their corrosion will be evidence against you. So, that which you're depending on for life, that's what you're, you know, for comfort, for security, this very thing by which you've walked over others is going to sit there and be a testimony against you. It's going to cry out for your judgment in that day. And... It will eat your flesh like fire. This word for corrosion is also used. It's really one of those words where it's it's a different word, but it's spelled the same. We've got some words like that in English language. And it it means poison. And it's as though the, the things that you depended on for your life are going to turn around and eat your flesh alive in that day. They're the very means of your judgment. He says, you've laid up... Uh, of course, he talks about your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. That calls to mind the words of Jesus in uh, Matthew 6 where he talks about uh, don't store up treasure on earth where moth uh, eats uh, your your garments, etc. This is a, a regular uh, metaphor. But then this last phrase, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Uh, the believers... Uh, knew that they were living in the last days that when Christ came, this ushered in the last days, unlike a lot of American theology that kind of buzzes and whispers about you know I think we might be in the last days you know that, that you 'll hear that i 've heard that my whole life for that 's a long life now that i 've been in the last days, but uh, <laughs> sixty years i 've been in the last days, but um we and, and there were books out when I was younger. Too, that uh, really didn't think we'd make it to the next generation. You know, a book entitled The Last Generation, you know, but hasn't been the last generation so far. But, but Scripture teaches clearly that the last days began at the coming of Jesus Christ. So we're in the denouement of history. We're in the apex, the final period of history that began with the death and resurrection of Christ. We're sliding into... The, the final coming of Jesus from that point on. this And, and so the, the last days are intense. The last days are a dividing point of people into heaven and hell, judgment or salvation. And this is some of what James is getting at. You've laid up treasure for yourself in the last days when the glory of God is broken in in Jesus Christ. What? You're, you're piddling around with treasures when the glory of God has broken in in Jesus Christ and this magnificent love of a God who would sacrifice himself in his own son, spending himself lavishly, or in the words of Paul, he who was rich became poor for your sake so that you who are poor might become rich and you're going to focus on money. What? And the other thing that the last days speak of is judgment is around the corner. So in the last days, when everything depends on what what you've done with your wealth and how you've lived a life of of submitting to God's lordship and gladly giving your life up to his love, you are going to spend it on your treasure in the last days. You've laid up treasure in the last days of all things. And so these are, of course, warnings for us, you know, that maybe absolutely we don't trust in our wealth, but to some degree perhaps we do. To some degree, as we said last week, we don't really seriously pray, give us this day our daily bread. Why would we do that? Because we're haughty. Because we're haughty, you know I know where my next meal's coming from. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to think about that. Well, why would Jesus ask, tell you that this is what I want you to pray? This is the kind of and it's not just those words, of course, but this is the kind of attitude I want you to have in your life. I want you to have this brokenness and this humility to recognize that every single thing you have comes from my hand directly, and you have nothing except what I give you. I want you to keep that attitude. Pray in this way. Have this heart of humility. Give give us this day our daily bread. At this point, perhaps it's it's good to say uh, that Scripture actually commands us for diligence. (laughs) It commands uh, saving for the next generation. Okay, It commands providence, uh, 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 being provident, you know, uh, careful with your money. We talked about this last week with the ant. He commends the ant. Go check out the ant. He works hard. He stores up stuff for when he needs it. So this is not against healthy saving. It's not against uh, meeting your needs. It's It's not against even as... Paul indicates in 1 Timothy, there's an enjoyment of what God has given us. But it's in the context of what? Great generosity, okay? Great generosity. And this kind of generosity will mean for every one of us, I will not live at a standard I could live at. It just must mean that. I know there's a lot of talk about, well, when you give 10%, then God makes the other 90 be more like 100%. Well, maybe not. Okay? Maybe he uses the discipline of living at a lower level and you enjoy it more than you ever did at living at your 100%. And, And you're happy about the discipline. You don't care about the discipline. You're happy to do without it. This is part of the glory that you give to God, that I love you more than I love my 10% or whatever the percentage is. And, you know, if if you really add up all the tithes of the Old Testament, it probably comes out to something like 15 or 16%, just saying. Uh, <laughs> if you want to get strict about a tithe. But you know, in the New Testament, rather than talking a lot about the 10%, or the various 10% that were offered, it, it talks like, uh, the verse I quoted, just just think of this one who lavished himself, became poor for your sake, and, and give in keeping with that sacrifice. Give in keeping with a God who spends himself that way. And probably for most Americans, that 10% is going to be kind of a starting point, and they keep drifting upward the more they're able to, and because they're just kind of lost in the love of Christ, you know, lost in the sacrifice of Jesus, and and of course Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. He he wants you to be delighted, thrilled at the opportunity, the privilege, and the discipline of it. You know, the discipline of it is a joy. Well, little parenthesis there, um, verses six four through six. He gives the wine. So the summons, then this is what's going to happen to your wealth. And this is why it's going to happen to you. Because the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, one of the things that was going on uh, in that time was greater and greater land ownership by fewer and fewer people. And the poor people were being pushed off the land and they were then helpless to to do anything but work for whatever wages there were and to be at the behest of the rich landowners. and And for many of them, it's so bad that, if you, for instance, what they would do is not pay you on a given day. And this is bad because as, as Scripture says, um, Leviticus nineteen thirteen, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning. That's because they had to have that money that day or they had nothing to eat. Okay? That's how poor these people are. They don't get paid at the end of the day. They can't go to market and get what they're going to eat that night. And, and their other needs. Uh, Deuteronomy 24 is the same way. Uh, you shall give him wages on the same day for the, before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Uh, and there are a lot of other passages in Jewish writings as well that we could talk about there. So what they would do, though, is not, not pay on a day, and then the next day or the next day... Uh, you can even dispute how much you really had to pay because it's uh, you know i don't remember how much that was, and so you defraud them even further, but the defrauding is not paying them on that very day because they don't eat if you don't pay them and he says you've you've done that very thing you you kept back by fraud you didn't pay them what they were owed, and they're in such a desperate situation because employment is so bad, and you got you just Thankful you have something to do, some work, and if you start demanding something or or bringing up the injustice of it, he can just say, "Okay, go find another job, go go get you another field to work in." He's got nowhere to go. You know, I was just I'm, I'm reading the uh, work of Taylor Branch on the civil rights movement, fifties and sixties, and a lot about Martin Luther King, of course, but. A lot of other issues as well, and i've uh, I've just broken down and cried over and over because my Alabama is one of the worst perpetrators you know um, just horrific things that just make me weep i, I just nothing I, that's just what's happening so there's this but what one of the things that whites were doing. I believe this, I can't remember which state this was in, but the guy at the federal government that was trying to work on voter registration. Now, this was all by law that blacks, of course, had the right to vote, okay? So what was happening, uh, he found, th- he had to do personal research, uh, didn't let people know who he was, and he just worked among the people and, and found three, uh, verified 300 blacks that had been, had lost their land as sharecroppers. They had lost their land. Why? Because they had registered to vote. And they were, they were living now in these freedom tents called, places where you don't have a place to live anymore. Why? Because of the great evil of wanting to vote and being given that right by the government, but whites were not allowing it. It's that kind of situation, you see. You've got all the power. And in Alabama, you could do a grievous, heinous crime, and it could go to the state uh, Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court is just as prejudiced as the sheriff is. What are you going to do? That's the kind of situation that he's talking about here. People who own all the power, have all the money, and they do whatever they want to. But, he says, those wages are crying out against you. I love that. Those wages that you kept, like this huge siren, this huge... You know, like it it makes me think of when... Uh, robbers, a guy robs a bank and then the blue bomb explodes, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of like, yikes. <laughs> uh, I was painting and, uh, you know, what do you do? What do you say? And like these wages that they have stolen and defrauded people of, they're like the blue bomb in Judgment Day. And they're crying out against them, crying out for their judgment, crying out for their punishment. And there's nothing that they can do. And it says, it's reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth, the Hebrew word. Well, hosts refers to the fact that he owns all the armies of heaven, of course, the angels. But it also refers to the fact that he runs the solar system. Okay, He runs all the hosts of heaven. Like the billions of stars that are in the billions of galaxies. He knows every one of them by name right now. He could reel them off for you and tell you exactly where they are. And he runs the whole thing. It's that Lord of hosts who's heard about the wages. And he will rescue his people. He will right all wrongs in that day because he is the Lord of hosts. Interesting how, and I've got to close, but um, they are, the the, the reference here, of fattening your hearts in a day of judgment. And I'll end with this uh, imagery. Uh, It's like cows, okay, (laughs) Like cows, it's interesting. They've done. They put sensors on cows as they walk through the chute for in the slaughterhouses, and the the cows have no fear, no fear at all. Uh, which is uh, one writer says that p- may do uh, give some comfort to steak lovers <laughs> that this cow did not know what was gonna to happen to it when it got killed. <laughs> but obviously they they want to, you know, be sure that they're not suffering trauma, you know, when they're they're killed. Um, but it is ironic, isn't it, that you, you can imagine a cow thinking out loud, he, he's like, you know, it was it was really great when I was I mean it was fine when I was out in the fields, but I had to walk around, find all this this grass, and sometimes it wasn't so... Man, I'm just eating high on the hog here. This grain is here every day. I do have to move. Man, this is fantastic. He has no idea, right? Pictured. I've said this before, in Gary Larson's great little cartoon, you know, where there's this line of cows, and there's some movement in front, and one in the back says, Hey, you! No breaking in line. You know? <laughs> the irony, you know? Uh, No, you want everybody to break in line and hope they don't get to you today. That's what you want, right? Well, this is the picture, though. The blind, confident, haughtiness of those whose lives are fixed on the wealth of this world. And that gathering of wealth is like a cow feeding on grain, fattening itself up for judgment. Dear friends, give yourself to Jesus. Let Him be your treasure. Let His love be the governing force in your life and not wealth that will do you no good in that day. Let us pray. O Lord God, we confess to You that our hearts so easily fix on things that are transient Things that we see, things that we think, I can count on this, I can count on that, and, and you're, you're the invisible God. We, it, even, even John says, if we say we love God, but hate man, how can, we, how can this be true? That We love God whom we don't see, but we don't love a man who we do see. Lord, we pray that we will love you that we will adore you, that we will embrace fully what Christ has done for us in giving himself lavishly on the cross and spending himself to the point of death in our place. And Lord, that we will joyfully give ourselves up to him and be set free from self, be set free from protecting ourselves and, Lord, that we will use all that you've given us in humility and generosity and joy. Lord, set us free in joy in you to use all that you give us for your glory and honor, whether it is enjoyment of the things you've given us, saving, giving, living out, meeting our needs, and and generously spending Giving our, our, our wealth to others who don't have it. Lord, bless us to be an honor to your great name.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times,
1: directions to the church and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.